In the 1989 movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. How many of you saw that one? Don't raise your hands. That's okay. Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford, and his father, played by Sean Connery, go on an adventure. They're in pursuit of a religious relic known as the Holy Grail, the supposed cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper. The legend says that anyone who drinks from the Holy Grail will have eternal life. Of course, the Nazis are after the Grail as well, and always trying to outsmart the Joneses. And the climax of the film finds all the main characters in a cave and at the location of the Holy Grail. However, there are dozens of cups of all shapes and sizes and materials. They have to pick the right cup, dip it into the well there, and drink to see if they will die or have eternal life. The villain picks first and picks the most ornate, gold-covered, jewel-encrusted cup of the lot. Must be the one for the king of kings, he thinks. He drinks and he dies. Then it's Indiana's turn. He only sees one cup in the lot that he thought a carpenter might have. An ordinary cup made of clay. He drinks and he lives. You'll have to watch the movie to see how it ends if you don't know already. But isn't it interesting that the Hollywood writers would recognize such a principle from the Bible. God's power and glory always, almost always, comes in ordinary packaging. Think of the birth of the, of the Messiah, which we just celebrated last month. How much more ordinary, common, and rough could that birth have been? in a stable, in an animal manger. Think back further in biblical history. How would God set His people free from the mightiest empire on earth? Through a shepherd named Moses who couldn't speak very well. Through his brother with a wooden rod. How would God heal an Assyrian general named Naaman who had leprosy by asking him to dip seven times in the muddy Jordan River? How would Jesus feed multiplied thousands of people who had followed him all day long with the simple lunch of a boy? We could go on and on and on throughout the stories of Scripture. Why does God do things the way He does? Why do we see His power and His glory most clearly in our sufferings and weaknesses, inadequacies, insufficiencies? Why is 
death the way to life. Paul helps us understand this very consistent pattern of God and his workings with men and women. In our text this morning, as he discusses matters of life and death, matters of life and death, I want to break down the text into three parts this morning. The first, we're going to look inside, then we're going to look outside, and then we're going to look beyond. So first, let's look inside, verses 7 through 12 of our text. Let me read it again. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not given to this, driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Back to verse 7. We have this treasure. What treasure, Paul? Is this a, is this a holy grail kind of relic that we're after? Not quite. The treasure refers back to verse 6 where we left off a couple Sundays ago. The treasure is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The ultimate treasure. The glory of God. We have it, Paul says. But it's not locked in a vault. It's not under government protection. It's not housed in a fortress somewhere like the the crown jewels of England are. It's in jars of clay. What do you mean, Paul? He means inside our bodies. The knowledge of the glory of God is inside our bodies. Whose bodies? Well, at the least, Paul is saying his body and the bodies of those with him in ministry, we have this treasure. I'm going to argue that the treasure is in the bodies of all followers of Jesus Christ. As Paul goes on in this chapter and in chapter 5. But for now, Paul is personal. He wants to talk with them from his own experience. He's going to get real with the Corinthians. But before that, he gives them the reason that the glory is in such weak temporary, breakable carriers. And here's the reason. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The power to lift man out of his powerlessness in the face of suffering, in the face of decay, in the face of death, does not come from within Himself. It comes only from God. It is a surpassing power. It's greater than anything that we possess. 
You know, if God had turned us all into Superman and Superwomen when we were converted, then people might think that the power came from ourselves. Our own strength. Our own abilities. But that's not how God works. That's not God's design. His power is seen best through our powerlessness. His strength is viewed most perfectly through our weakness. His life is best put on display through our dying bodies. Paul knew this firsthand. Toward the end of this letter, in chapter 12, verse 7, Paul mentions a thorn in the flesh that he's had for quite a while. Some kind of physical disability. We speculate maybe it was difficulty with eyesight based on some of the things he's written. In the first chapter of this letter, in chapter 1, verse 8, he refers to despairing of life itself. That's getting real. You ever been there? Despaired of life. Wanted to die. Paul's been there. And then look at this fourfold list of troubles in verses 8 and 9. Afflicted. That's the word that's often translated tribulation in the New Testament. It's literally the word that means pressures of every kind. Perplexed literally means to be cornered, to be hemmed in, nowhere to go. Persecuted. It's the idea of being hounded. It's like at a hunt, like when the dogs are going after the foxes, you know, that kind of thing. It's like it's like you're being chased, you're being pursued, you're being hounded, struck down. It's a wrestling term. means to be thrown to the ground. It may be a reference back to Paul's stoning at Lystra in Acts chapter 14 when he was literally knocked down to the ground. This is all part of what Paul means by jars of clay. It's also important to point out here that Paul is not saying that the body is bad and the spirit, the inside of us, is good. That's an ancient heresy. It's it's called dualism. Something that the Greeks thought up in their wisdom. Um, It's a heresy. It's false. That's why some monks beat themselves, whip themselves, self-flagellation. Uh, Because they think the body is all bad and the inside is good. It's even led to things today dealing with uh, what we call gender dysphoria. Where the inside of me doesn't match the outside of me. It's all an ancient heresy. It's an ancient paganism. But that's not what Paul is saying. God created us whole people. Body and spirit together. Not separate. Paul's not demeaning our bodily existence. He's simply talking about reality. About the the fragility, the brokenness, the weakness of bodily existence. 
Fortunately, he doesn't just stop with the negative. Each one of these troubles in verses 8 and 9 has a but not after it. Did you notice that? What does the power of God in jars of clay prevent? Well, it means that you will not be crushed. It means that you will not be driven to despair. It means that you will not be forsaken. It means that you will not be destroyed. The power of God is what fuels Paul and his companions in their weakness, in their suffering. It keeps them going so that it is obvious to everybody that they are not operating in their own power, but God's. They are testimonies to His grace. And it is obvious. It is clear. Friends, this has always been God's way. Even with our Lord Jesus. As we already mentioned in His birth, but, but also think about His ministry. He didn't have a place to lay His head at night. He was often hungry, often tempted, often under pressures, often cornered, often hounded, and of course, finally, knocked down even to death. On the cross, Jesus cried out to His Father, asking Him why He had forsaken Him. The same word that's used in verse 9. The truth is this, friends. Jesus was crushed. Isaiah 53. Jesus was driven to despair. Read about the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was forsaken on the cross. And Jesus was, at least from all accounts at the time, destroyed in His death temporarily. And He was all of those things so that we would never be any of those. And in His resurrection, the power of God never shined more brightly. In Jesus' very body, it was obvious that it was the glory of God. It was the power of God in Him on display. Paul knows this. That's why he goes on in verses 10-12 through 12 to talk about the death of Jesus and how he carries that around in his body so that he would also know the resurrection power of Jesus. He wrote about this to the Philippians too. Do you remember that? Philippians 3.10 That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings becoming like Him in His death. The death of Jesus in Paul's body is His way of speaking of all the physical and emotional and spiritual pain associated with his ministry of the gospel. It's a way that Paul 
and all Christians identify with and put on display our association with Jesus through suffering with and for and like Jesus in our bodies. This is an important truth to Paul. He repeats the idea. He says it in verse 10, and then he says the same thing, just a little different way in verse 11. Our dying, all of this stuff he talked about in verses 8 and 9, being, being uh, perplexed and, 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 and being you know, pursued and persecuted and all that, all this dying, suffering is okay because it will show forth the life of Jesus as well. It's worth all of it. By the way, this doesn't mesh very well with the false preachers of today and of Paul's day who would say that if you're a true follower of Jesus, you won't suffer. You won't get sick. You won't suffer poverty. You just need more faith. You just need to send me more money. That message doesn't gel with the words of this text, friends, because it's false, because it doesn't gel with the way God works in the world. How do we see this resurrection life on display? It's because of the but nots back in in verses 8 and 9. The Christian does not surrender to his problems and his difficulties. The Christian doesn't give up. And that in itself is evidence that the life of Jesus is revealed in him through the sovereign, glorious power of God. Paul's also thinking of the future when God's resurrection power will finally and fully deliver us from death as he goes on in verse 14 to talk about. Then too, the life of Jesus will be manifested in us, but permanently. Paul concludes this look inside with an interesting statement in verse 12 that his own suffering as a jar of clay will not only reveal Christ's life in himself, but also it will reveal life in the Corinthians. This is the effect of his preaching ministry. As he gives the gospel, the treasure to others, and as they see the jar of clay it comes from and recognizes that the power isn't Paul's, it's Christ's, they can receive that treasure too and know the life-giving resurrection power of Jesus Christ for themselves. His, Paul's dying, suffering in the ministry of the Gospel produces life in others. And as Paul reflects on this fact, he stops looking inside himself and he looks outside to those he ministers to. And that brings us to our second point. Looking outside. 
verses 13 and following. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul encourages the Corinthians now. He's just said, because of my suffering, it's producing life in you. And now it's almost like he lifts his head and he's talking to them now. Paul wants to encourage the Corinthians by giving them a brief statement of faith and a brief philosophy of ministry in verses 13 to 15. He quotes from Psalm 116 in verse 10 here. This is what Paul is saying. Do you want to know why I continue to speak? Do you want to know why I continue to go through this ministry which is bringing me quite a bit of suffering? Because I believe something. I believe something. What do I believe? I believe that one day I will be resurrected to heaven to live forever with Jesus and with you. That's what Paul believes. There's the statement of faith. I believe something. And so I will continue to speak. That's the idea of the verb there to speak, to continue to speak. Brothers and sisters, do you know what you believe? And if you really believe that people will spend eternity separated from God because of their sins, if you really believe that, doesn't that compel you to speak as well? Shouldn't it? This is why we're going to do a lot of training this year in evangelism. Because we believe something about Jesus. We believe something about sin and its consequences. We believe something about the offer, the gift of eternal life. And so we must speak. And here comes the philosophy of ministry. Paul says, I am compelled to continue on with my gospel ministry because of my belief in the resurrection. But here's the plan, Corinthians. As I continue to speak, God is going to extend His grace through that message, the treasure, through my jar of clay, And it will make more and more people thankful for Jesus and giving glory to God. In other words, God's grace, the power, through my preaching, the jar of clay, will result in changed lives. What is your philosophy of ministry, Christian? Do you believe, do you really believe that the more you speak about Christ, the more you hand out gospel tracts, 
the more you live a godly, consistent life in front of the lost, the more you suffer for Jesus' sake, do you really believe the more that happens that people will be saved? Does that motivate you? Or is your plan that hopefully the pastor will get more people in the doors and preach to them so I don't have to say anything to nobody? That's not the plan, is it? In these matters of life and death, it's not enough just to look inside and see the work of God in us. We must look outside ourselves and speak with faith, expecting the Lord to save others. And He will. That brings us to our third point this morning. As Paul is talking about this glorious salvation, this message that he has the privilege to continue to speak out to others consistently and faithfully in this jar of clay that he has. As Paul often does when he starts speaking about theological themes, he just kind of goes into another gear and he looks beyond. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The end of chapter 4 here, Paul takes a step back and he looks beyond to the bigger picture. These are some of the most precious verses in the Bible. These verses have been claimed by thousands of perhaps millions of Christians going through suffering and in dying at the end of their lives. These verses have brought encouragement to martyrs about to die for the cause of Jesus through the ages. They help us to bring perspective. The psalmist Asaph wrote very similar words in Psalm 73, 25, and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. Jar of clay. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the power. That's the glory. You know, at this point in his life, the Apostle Paul was getting older, probably in his late 50s. He's feeling his age more. And what would normally be discouraging to stop and meditate on and reflect on is actually transformed into something incredibly encouraging. Paul's saying, yes, we're getting older. Little by little. Our bodies, our outer self, are wasting away. Let's face it. We're all dying. 
in that we all have an expiration date of God's choosing that is getting ever closer. But despite that, something in us is not dying, not wasting away. Actually, it's growing day by day. It's our inner self, our spirit. Paul had talked about this back in chapter 3, verse 18. Do you remember this verse? And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are being changed into the image of Jesus. The glorious face of Jesus. Day by day by day. On the inside. Paul told the Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is at the return of Jesus. That's what Paul's looking for. Out beyond the here and now. That's why he still did not lose heart. No, no. Not for a moment. The outside of me, yeah, it's wasting away. Just look in the mirror. Now, you, now you younger kids, you know, you're like, yeah, look in the mirror. <sighs> yeah. Just wait. The outside may be wasting away, little by little, day by day. But the inner self, oh, that's getting more glorious every single day. More like Jesus. And then verse 17. Oh, what a brilliant verse. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Ever meditate on that verse? I bet you have. If you ever wanted to use a scale to illustrate something, here it is. Our affliction on one side and our future glory on the other side. And it's no contest. Paul says clearly, one thing is light and one thing is heavy. One thing is temporary and one thing is eternal. And God turns our natural thinking on its head because we think that our affliction is heavy. And it goes on forever. But God turns our natural thinking on its head and gives us His wise, heavenly perspective. The reformer John Calvin wrote about this verse. This is what he said. This comparison 
makes that light, which previously seemed heavy, and makes that brief and momentary, which seemed of boundless duration. When we have once raised our minds heavenwards, a thousand years begins to look to us to be like a moment. Paul says the two sides really can't be compared at all. Beyond all comparison means to an utterly incomparable degree. It's impossible to compare the two. The greater the affliction that you suffer, the infinitesimal greater glory that is being prepared for you and in you. This is why we look to Jesus. Because according to Hebrews 12, too, Jesus saw the joy that was set before him. He saw what couldn't be compared to the cross. Not at all. Not to any degree. The joy that was set before him weighed down that side of the scale and pushed the crucifixion off and up and out. Because of the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus didn't go to the cross thinking, I hope it all works out. He knew that the affliction of the cross could not begin to be compared to the joy in eternity that that suffering would produce. And the same was true for Paul. And the same is true for you and me. And one of the great results of our suffering with this perspective, as the text tells us, is that it helps us to focus or fix our eyes more on the unseen than the seen. On the next world more than this one. Do you ever get a little too focused on this world? Yeah, pretty much every day. Gets you upset, doesn't it? Why do you think Paul spends so much time telling us things like in Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth? A right perspective brings joy. Brings endurance with joy. And works an infinite glory inside of you and in your future heaven. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back to the front. I want to wrap up this last section with a question.
Where do you see the unseen? Think about it. Okay, so Paul tells us we should set our minds on things above. What does that mean? What does that look like? Does that mean that, you know, we, we just kind of put our blinders on and just sing Jesus loves me all day long? Where do you see the unseen? I'll tell you some of the places I see it. See if you see it too. I see it in the quiet acts of hospitality and love that rarely make the headlines, that rarely shows up on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. I see it in the trust and hope of a Christian facing life-altering illness or death. I've seen it many times there. I see it in the faithfulness of a missionary all alone in his or her city being faithful day after day after day after day. I see it closer to home in the selfless love of a Christian husband to his wife and a wife to her husband. I see the unseen there. I see it in the quiet obedience of children to their parents. I see the eternal there. I see the unseen. I see it in the kind and gentle forgiveness offered when Christian brothers and sisters have conflict with each other. I see it in the generous way that Christians serve those in need and love our neighbors without expectation of anything in return. I see it in the daily repenting of sins that no one else knows about but God. We're having a funeral tomorrow for a dear sister who's gone on to heaven. Hopefully by now, you've seen how Christians can celebrate the death of another Christian even as we mourn their passing. Because we believe something. We believe in the resurrection power of Jesus. We believe in eternal life. The unseen. I see it in all the small but steady ways that we are renewed inside day by day by day to look more like Jesus. The work the Spirit's doing in you. The work the Spirit will complete in you. In next week's text, Paul will tell us that this is called walking by faith, not by sight. It's not that we ignore the here and the now and all become you know, monks praying on the top of a mountain looking to the sky waiting for Jesus. We acknowledge the realities of this present world. We acknowledge the suffering that we endure. It's real. It doesn't feel light. 
doesn't feel temporary. But as we fix our gaze on eternal realities, and by the way, those eternal realities are every bit just as real as what we see with our eyes here. As we fix our gaze on eternal realities, our perspective will change. The scale will suddenly tip to one side. And Jesus will fill us with His resurrection life and power and hope that will help us to pick up our crosses again and follow Jesus for the joy set before us for the treasure, for the glory, for Christ Himself, who is our glory. May these verses be an encouragement to us as we continue in this sin-cursed world to be faithful and to wait for His coming with joy. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters. We're going to sing our song of the month, which I hope you'll, as you're learning it, I hope you're thinking about the words as you sang. They are rich and very applicable to these truths that we're learning. Let's sing together.